Radio Erin. We present The Death of a Lord Mayor, a tribute to Terence McSweeney, Lord Mayor of Cork, who died in Brixton Prison on the 25th of October, 1920. Compiled by Andres O'Gallagher, with music by Sean O'Reilly. The Death of a Lord Mayor. cries out for a sacred thing voices a universal need to exist the healthy mind must have beautiful things the rapture of a song the music of running water the glory of a sunset and its dreams and the deeper dreams of the dawn Tall and very dark, always a lock of thick black hair hanging over his forehead, and rather hooded eyes, but um, they'd open rather sleepily, and then they were certainly quite a blaze at you. Two long lines down each side from his nose to his mouth, very thoughtful looking, very sweet smile. As sweet as a horrid word, I don't mean saccharine, but a really very pleasant smile. In, in a way, an ungainly walk, he always wore his overcoat flying open, flying back. It is almost accepted by a later generation that Terence McSweeney was a visionary. That is not the right word. Idealist is more fitting. So too were the others. That is the Pierces, and many of their companions. I cannot believe that any one of them had the making of a good sergeant major in him. I know that Terence had not. In the end of all, however, the influence of the sergeant major is for here and now. That of the idealists for century after century. Terence McSweeney, Lord Mayor of Cork and First Magistrate of the City, was arrested on the evening of August 12, 1920, in the City Hall, Cork, and tried in Victoria Barracks. There were four charges. One, without lawful authority or excuse, being in possession of a cipher on August the 12th. 
The cipher was the numerical cipher issued to the Royal Irish Constabulary. Two, having the cipher under his control. Three, being in possession of a document containing statements likely to cause disaffection to His Majesty. Four, a copy of the speech made by the Lord Mayor when he was elected to that office as successor to Lord Mayor McCurtain. The President of the Court was Lieutenant Colonel James, South Staffordshire Regiment. The Prosecutor was Captain Gover. The Lord Mayor was not legally represented and refused to plead. Evidence for the prosecution was heard and the court retired. After an absence of 15 minutes, the President pronounced the findings. Not guilty on the first charge, guilty on the second, third and fourth. The Lord Mayor spoke. I wish to state I will put a limit to any term of imprisonment you may impose as a result of the action I will take. I have taken no food since Thursday. I shall be free, alive or dead, within a month. He was sentenced to two years' imprisonment, and the historic police cipher, which ostensibly sent him into exile and eventually to death, is recalled by Commandant Joseph O'Connor, who attended that meeting in the City Hall. On the way to this meeting, I called to Wallace's shop in St. Augustine Street to see if there were any dispatches. Uh, this shop was always a headquarters depot for dispatches and verbal messages. All the business was looked after by, carefully, by Sheila and Nora Wallace. There were messages there to police telegrams in code. I took them, as well as a copy of the code used by the police at the time. Now to decode the telegrams would have kept me late for the council meeting, so I decided to do it at the meeting. The business of the night had just started when word came in to say that the military had arrived to raid the premises. Naturally, we all tried to escape, but some of us were hampered because we did not know the layout of the place. Some of the men got to a workshop near Eglinton Street and found the military there before them. We were all cut. And then Terry arrived. I had the two police messages and the code in my pocket. I knew I had to get rid of them. That was easy with the two telegrams. I eat them. Not so easy to dispose of the code. I gave it one tear and put it amongst some timber in the shed. What apparently happened then was that the first raiding party found the code in the shed and then planted it in the Lord Mayor's desk for the second raiding party to find it. On the fifth day of his hunger strike, he was handed into the custody of the governor of Brixton Prison. The reports were brief. There are about 30 persons on hunger strike. Amongst these being the Lord Mayor of Cork, who has partaken of no food since his arrest. The Lord Mayor of Cork, Alderman Terence McSweeney, MP, was deported shortly after two o'clock yesterday morning. He has been on hunger strike since Thursday and looked weak and fatigued. Chief Secretary, Irish Office, London. The Home Secretary informs me that the Lord Mayor of Cork is now in Brixton Prison. The jury at the inquest on the body of Sergeant Craddock, who was shot dead in Athlone on Saturday night, 
found that he met his death by bullet wounds inflicted by some person or persons unknown. They tendered deceased relatives a heartfelt sympathy. Constable Madden, who was with the sergeant at the time, said that they were fired at just as they left the comrades of the Great War Club. Volley followed volley till the sergeant fell. Volley followed volley out along the byroads of Ireland, and there were few comrades in the clubs. There were comrades in Crossley tenders, uneasily eyeing the land, and comrades in a strange kitchen sleeping fitfully, and others keeping a long vigil. The Cork River gave forth its splendid autumnal flood, plenty of dark brown water from Govan Barra, and the country watched ordinary men doing common things. and soldiers. West Cork tragedy. Constable shot dead. Three soldiers wounded. The Dublin Horse Show. The Dublin Horse Show Committee met and passed a resolution expressing their gratification at the cordial response to the appeal which had been made to the country to revive the glories of the show. It may appear unintelligible, but it must be said that this great show has had, in the opinion of all Irishmen, a greater effect on political sentiment than could be produced by any other means. Trotsky, as chairman of the Russian military Soviet, has addressed an order to the Red Army fighting against Poland. Heroes to Warsaw. Long live the workers and peasants of the Red Army. The following message to the Irish people was given by the Lord Mayor of Cork to Mrs. McSweeney yesterday. We must be prepared for casualties in this last battle for Irish independence. Let every man offer his life, and the future of the Republic will be safe. The following telegram handed in at London at 5.25 last evening was received by the Deputy Lord Mayor. Lord Mayor collapsed at 4.45. Rallying again, Father Dominic. The heroic struggle had begun to sink into the public consciousness and the legend of the quiet man who was sacrificing his life in slow agony for an ideal was beginning to take shape. The teacher in Thornafalla remembered him in Gogon Barra during a summer 50 years ago. He uh, went to most of his time in Gogon. Dan was doing some landscape painting there. Whether he was helping him or not, I couldn't say, but he was always with Dan Curtry. And he was a very reserved, gentlemanly man, you know, not very communicative. Except for those I suppose he knew well, but he he spent a very quiet time while I during my time there in Gugan. And he used to take my bicycle to Gugan. And I kept the bicycle for years after <laughs> memory of him. When it was long when it had long out till its, its usefulness. Eileen Yhuama remembered him and how he used to arrive in Turin Do outside Belangere, tired on a Saturday night. Timber 
Yes, he was always a Few men were capable of surviving so much labor as he was. While studying for a BA degree at night and working as a bookkeeper during the day, he reduced his sleeping hours to six, rising at five in the morning. It was every man's duty to train his mind for leadership. Every minute was important. Every word and conversation had a purpose. In his mind, part of the slow, deliberate process which would eventually lead to liberation. When Professor Donal O'Corcora had a free minute in his slum school, the office clerk entered the wicket. I had, for five or six years, been teaching a slum school. The building itself had been set down in a half-hearted clearance of a network of lanes and passages. The backs of four-storied, half-ancient, overcrowded houses looked down on our playground on two sides, and the confused crush of sheds and stables, in one of which the Quaker community kept its house, hemmed us in on the other. Now it happened that the warehouse in which Terence McSweeney was bookkeeper was only a short distance from us, though not in a slum. In a minute or two, by surreptitiously using a wicket in the huge black gate that hid the Quaker's hearse, he would be in the midst of us, except the driver of the hearse, I cannot recall anyone else using that same wicket. At one o'clock then, lunchtime for him, he would drop in, staying usually only a few minutes. Night after night of this period, he worked late, hour after hour. Philosophy, music, verse, his own, European literature, Greek, Irish, and al always basic thinking on separatism. He was, as somebody said, a great man for the basics. Day after day, for over ten years, he slaved, rarely entering a controversy, so that when the hour came, he could go to the conference table or to the platform and offer calmly and deliberately the fundamental, unanswerable case for separatism. Few men were more honest than he, few more logical, so devoid of prejudice, but so uncompromising with the ideas he had nursed to maturity in a sealed mind and for which he had given the best years of his early manhood. If the whole nation stand for it, we are happy. If only a few are faithful, they must be the more steadfast for being but a few. They stand for an individual right that is inalienable. A majority has no right to annul it and no power to destroy it. Tyrannies may persecute, slay, or banish those who defend it. That thing itself is indestructible. It does not need legions to protect it, 
no genius to proclaim it, though the poets always glorified it and the legions will ultimately acknowledge it. And should a few sink in the struggle, the greatness of the ideal is proved in the last hour. As they fall, their country awakens to their dream. London, September the 10th. The Lord Mayor of Cork approaches his end in Brixton Prison, and six deaths by violence are reported from Ireland. If, as they seem determined to do, the government permit Alderman McSweeney to die, they will blunt the weapon of the hunger strike in the hands of the Irish extremists. But they will, with far greater certainty, rally once more those extremist forces which very recently have shown signs of doubt and perturbation. The police are busily engaged in searching for the men who hired a taxi cab in Belfast and proceeded to Lisburn, a distance of seven miles, and murdered Mr. Swansea, district inspector of the RIC. Mr. Swansea had been in Lisburn only a short time, having been transferred from Cork, where he was stationed at the time that the late Lord Mayor of that city, Alderman McCurtain, was shot dead in his own home. Mr. Swansea was one of the principal witnesses at the inquest. Mrs. Snowden, giving a pen picture of Lenin, said he was a small man with a bald head, having a fringe of reddish hair at the back and a tiny red beard. His mouth is large and his lips thick. His eyes are red-brown and he possesses the merriest twinkle. Mrs. Snowden warns the world against that twinkle. The Lord Mayor of Cork has not suffered much during the day. He shows signs of greater weakness, but is without pain and still conscious. This is the 23rd day of the hunger strike in Cork Jail, and the prisoners are in a very weak and exhausted condition. They are not able to speak above a whisper, and it's apparent that the long-drawn-out struggle is coming to a close. There are 11 prisoners. Sean Hennessy Limerick. Michael Burke, Folkstown, Perlis. Tom Donovan, Emily. Joe Murphy, Polidoff, Cork. John Power, Cashel. John Crowley, Ballylanders. Peter Crowley, Ballylanders. Michael O'Reilly, Ballylanders. Christopher Upton, Ballylanders. Joe Kenny, Grenat. Michael Fitzgerald, Formoy. Mr. G.L. Redmond Howard, writing to the Prime Minister yesterday regarding the Lord Mayor of Cork, offers to become a hostage for him and serve his sentence if necessary. The Daily News Geneva correspondent says... Having had a conversation with Mr. Lloyd George, I am not able to state his attitude towards the Lord Mayor of Cork and the Irish situation generally. If you let these men out, said the Prime Minister, you cannot govern Ireland. Then who is to govern Ireland if not the British Empire? In a statement to the Irish people, the Lord Mayor has written from Brixton on behalf of his comrades and himself. Our determination is to go on. Our resolution was made from the beginning. 
we are prepared to die, we forgive all those who are involved in our deaths. This battle is being fought with a clean heart, purely for our country. We have made our peace with God and bear ill will to no man. The autumn colours ripened past their best, and the season dragged itself along night upon night. The vivid faces were now grey and grim, and the poet's black oxen passed nearer to the door, and the image hardened in the poet's mind. 1912. And the poet will be unlike you, gentlemen of fastidious phrase. He will not be careless of form, but the passion that is in him will make simple words burn and live and make articulate the dream of men and make splendid their triumph. For a propagandist to sit down and give it utterance would be as if a handyman were to set out to build a cathedral. The revolution does not need to be argued. It justifies itself. All we need is to give it utterance. Give it utterance once greatly. And George Russell took his pen and wrote a sonnet called Brixton Prison. See, though the oil be low, more purely still and higher, the flame burns in the body's lamp. The watcher still gaze with unseeing eyes, while the Promethean will, the uncreated light, the everlasting fire sustains itself against the torturer's desire, even as the fabled titan chained upon the hill. Burn on, shine here, thou immortality, until we too have lit our lamps at the funeral pyre, till we too can be noble, unshakable, undismayed, till we too can burn with the holy flame, and know there is that within us can triumph over pain, and go to death alone, slowly, unafraid. The candles of God are already burning row on row, Farewell, light-bringer. Fly to thy heaven again. Mrs. McSweeney, who was with her husband all yesterday afternoon, appeared to be considerably agitated when she left Brixton Prison in the evening. She was not inclined to talk to waiting reporters, but said that her husband was dying fast. The Press Association reports that large crowds gathered in the streets outside Brixton Prison last night, all anxious to learn something of the Lord Mayor's state of health before retiring to their houses for the night. He was a merry lad, always ready for sport. Very attractive looking. Never broody or anything like that. I never saw him play a game because, of course, when I knew him as a boy, it was only casually with my brother. They were both in the North Monastery and I was in Sullivan's Key School. And the river divided us. And at that time, the lads in Cork on the south side knew nothing about the lads on the north side. He was beautiful. Dark, tall. He was taller than Tomás. And he generally wore a slouch hat. And there were always a little red tufts of hair peepy under it. He never seemed to be able to control that little tuft of hair. 
he enjoyed very, uh, he enjoyed rather a, a boyish sense of humor, mm. perhaps. Yes. Uh, yes. I can't remember any incident now because it all seemed to be so ordinary at the time, you know, but we found him a very cheerful and cheery companion when he happened to, to drop in at the house. An odd peculiarity about him which struck me at the time was that uh, in uh, taking off or putting on his boots, he always wore boots, uh, he'd always stand on one foot and unless the other boot standing like that and uh, in the morning putting them on he would do the same thing, he'd stand on one foot and put on his other boot and lace it that way. I remember one night we had argued very late about the American Civil War. He had read a lot about it. And uh, in the morning, he, he still had it in his mind, evidently, because while standing in the middle of the floor uh, on one foot and, and lacing the other boot, uh, he, he still went on arguing about the American Civil War. He thought and argued even while lacing his high boots. Men had to be trained for leadership. Not a minute could be wasted. And to train for leadership, a man had to know so much. The repertory theatre is the nursery of a particular art cult, and it would relieve some of us to talk freely about it. Men are making songs and plays and lectures for art's sake, for the praise of a coterie, or to shock the bourgeois. A certain type of artist delights in shocking the bourgeois. Sometimes he tries to be emotional and is painfully artificial. Sometimes he tries to be merry and gives us flippancy for fun. Great work can be made only for the love of work, not for money, not for art's sake, not for intellectual appeal, nor flippant ridicule, but for the pure love of things, good, true, and beautiful. The pure love of things, good, true, and beautiful. And he wrote a play called Holocaust, about life, pure and poor. Professor Don Le Corcora remembers its first production in January 1911. Holocaust was a one-shot act. Dimly lighted, there lay on the stage a dying child. Her bed was something like an outworn orange case. There was much straw strewn around. A priest who had himself coughed and coughed, not too obtrusively, had, it appeared, failed again to come in with any help for the stricken home. For the father of the child, there was no work to be had anywhere. Then the dispensary doctor makes his visit, peers down into the child's bed, silently looks at the priest, shakes his head hopelessly, nervously staring at her. Then a glance at her child. She chokes up, smothering her groan. The father turns swiftly around, stares, then makes a few steps.
towards the cradle, halts again with his two hands as if he would snatch the child. He makes another move. At once, both priest and mother rush at him, grasp him. With violence, he flings them from him. Now the father has the stage to himself. Perfectly still, he glares and glares. The eyes of the audience fasten on him. Suddenly, his hand slowly travels up. He is actually facing the audience. His whole figure, compressing itself, seems to travel up, become taller and taller, quite taut. Then his right hand, not closed, but hard and stretched upmost to the ultimate, seeking in the sky, as it were. His left arm lies hard against his side. He is a dark figure of the hardest bronze. Then, in a voice that shook the building, he makes to the heaven his speech of four words, two phrases, Lord God, strike them. At 10 o'clock last night, the Lord Mayor of Cork was reported by a news agency to be unconscious. Mayor McSweeney had then been in an unconscious state for several hours. Michael Fitzgerald, a native of Formoy, has died of hunger strike in Cork after a fast of 67 days. Terence McSweeney writes one of his last letters to Carl Brew in indelible pencil on a slip of paper, and he thinks of Easter week and the agony of walking up and down the floor of the volunteer hall in Cork, not a shot fired. Achail, your letter went to my heart. I would not have you in my place here for anything. I am praying that you will be among the survivors to lead the army of the Republic in the days of freedom. I feel final victory is coming in our time, and pray earnestly that those who are most needed will survive to direct it. Will you give my loving remembrances to all at GHQ? Remember me especially to Mick Collins, Dick McKee, Dermod, Rory O'Connor, Garoed, Austin, too many names rise before me. But don't forget Leo Henderson. I'm sending a line to Dick Mulcahy. Too tired to go on. Ah, Carl, the pain of Easter week is properly dead at last.
Annie McSweeney began her diary of the last days. Wednesday. I was with him in the morning, but I had no idea he was on the verge of delirium. There was some knocking going on in the yard, and suddenly he said to me very excitedly, Do you hear that knocking? That's Griffith's new treatment. You stay now and watch. Listen. Do you hear? What's the time? Quarter past ten. Show me the watch. I can tell the time more accurately than you. Look, it's only thirteen and a quarter minutes past ten. It was. And today is Wednesday. Now am I perfectly conscious, am I not? Then he lay quiet for a few minutes looking at me. And then he said, Now, you are my witness. I am a soldier dying for the Irish Republic. Now will you swear that I, Annie McSweeney, do hereby affirm that... Have you anything we could kiss? I repeated the sentence after him and held up the cross of my rosary beads. He was dying a soldier of the Irish Republic. As Professor Don Cockera said, he would never have made a good sergeant major. And Florence O'Donoghue thought... He was the very best kind of soldier in the circumstances of the time. The man who serves out of a sense of duty. In Terry's case, too, I think there was a reason to conviction. A decision to which he was impelled by his passion for justice and righteousness. Since 1901, when he was one of the foundation members of the small group in Cork who began to work for the establishment of an Irish Republic, he had faced the practical problems of the task. He did enough hard work between then and the foundation of the volunteers to shed any romantic or sentimental ideas he might have had about it. And in those early years, he reached the conclusion that if force continued to be the basis of foreign occupation, the only effective counter to it was an armed force of Irishmen. He knew the value of the only kind of discipline that would be any use in our circumstances. Service voluntarily undertaken, duty performed out of a sense of loyalty to a cause. And in that, too, his personal example was a standard for us all. The heroic struggle was drawing to a close and friends began to arrive from Ireland. Geraldine Neeson came and she remembered a happier visit into the five-mile radius of Bromyard for his wedding in the summer of 1917. I remember that it was a very bright June day. It, it had been a very bright June weather for the, for the whole fortnight that I was there, actually. And the air was full of sense of June and the cuckoos were driving us all mad night and day. I never heard such cuckoos. The little church was only a short distance from where Muriel and I were staying and uh, just across the road and through uh, over a footpath through a field. And so we walked it, all of us together. The little, uh, when we got to the little church, I must tell you that um, Terry had to pay the seven and sixpence in order to have the church registered for marriages so that he could get married there. They were married by Father Augustine, who was a very great friend of uh, Terry's. And the little Belgian priest who belonged to the local church assisted. I don't think there was anybody else in the church except um, the wedding party, which consisted of um, the two Mrs. Miss McSweeney's 
Miss Mary and Miss Annie, and um, Dick Mulcahy, who was the best man, and myself. And when the wed wedding was over, we all went back to the house where Muriel and I had been staying, and we had a small wedding breakfast. October the 22nd. The condition of the Lord Mayor of Cork was reported last night to be extremely critical. Although his heart and pulse are subject to some spasmodic workings, the Lord Mayor has been quieter since the last bulletin. I knew very well then in Trangach camp, in the south camp. And he was more or less like the rest of it, except that he was quieter and easier and more studious and more contemplative. He was a kind of a dreamer. And I'd say nearly three-fourths of a dreamer. And not too much a man of the world. That was my honest opinion of Terry Mac when I knew him in the South Camp. And he was a man that you, 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 you'd love. You, you, he was a likable character. Likable. I'd say he never played a game, but a guy may be wrong in that. I'd say he never played a game. I'd say he never roughed it. Never since I had football or hurling, you know, or handball or anything like that. That was my impression of him. He may, but uh, that's only my opinion. Sean Eason remembered a pleasant evening in Mary McSweeney's school. One afternoon in St. Eta's, uh, which at that time was, of course, a political salon. Everybody who came to Cork uh, found their way, infallibly found their way there. And this afternoon, one of the visitors was a very charming young South African who was clairvoyant. And she whiled away the time for us very pleasantly by uh, holding our hands and uh, telling us uh, something about ourselves. And she even induced uh, the Lord Mayor. He was debonair and gallant as usual. And in spite of the terrific pressure of business which left him, no time for social activities, he did allow her to take his hand with a smiling acquiescence. And she said a few non-committal things to him before he rushed off about his mayoral and military duties. But hardly had the door closed when she wheeled on Mary McSweeney, Terry's elder sister, and implored him, implored her with all the vehemence she could command to take care of her brother. And she repeated this more than once, because, she says, I can't explain this clearly, but I see him slowly, slowly wasting away. At 10 o'clock last night, the Lord Mayor of Cork was reported by a news agency to be still unconscious. Annie McSweeney continues her diary. I sat near Terry and he opened his eyes and looked at me. I asked, do you know me? And he answered, yes. Who am I? I asked. Annie, he replied. Then he asked me what month was it? October, I said. What year? 1920, I said. Have I been here all summer, he said. All summer, and never saw the autumnal river bulge with its dark brown waters from Gugon Barra, 
the floods in Winthrop Street, the trees shedding their leaves along the dike, the glistening roofs of Summer Hill. was drawing near 10 o'clock as we again received Terry's body into our keeping and we followed the volunteers who bore him to the city hall and his comrades and his friends passed by and looked at his dead face. Some thought it beautiful though marked by the awful signs of his agony. Others thought it the face of a stranger. after his coffin and buried him with all prayers and benedictions the church could give. No hand but a comrade's touched his grave. Those who had worked and fought with him laid him there and they covered his coffin with the earth of the land he died for. And then they laid over him the fresh green sod and resting on it the volunteer hat that he had worn last as he followed Tomas to his grave. The flag that had wrapped him, the cross that had lain on his breast, it soothed me to have them, and the camera I got the day he died to photograph his face. It was only used that once to get the picture of him as he lay in the stillness of death after his long fight. was The Death of a Lord Mayor, a tribute to Terence McSweeney, Lord Mayor of Cork, who died in Brixton Prison on the 25th of October, 1920. Contributors to the program were Geraldine Neeson, Sean Hegarty, Nora Wallace, Padraig O'Keefe, Joseph O'Connor, Liam O'Sullivan, 
Irene Heene, Sean Neeson, Major Florence O'Donoghue, and Professor Donald O'Kirkere. The readers were James Stack, Dan Donovan, Michael Toomey, Eileen Riskoil, Morinik Lachlan, Donald Donovan, and Seamus Moynihan. The program was compiled and presented by Andreas O'Gallagher, with music by Sean O'Reilly, played by the Radio Air and Light Orchestra, conducted by the composer.